Welcome to Wappy Hour, a conversation hosted by InterVarsity's Women in the Academy and Professions, giving voice to women seeking to live fully into their God-given callings and be a redeeming influence, whether in the university or beyond. This is Caroline Trisick, and today we are speaking with Kathy Kong, author of Raise Your Voice, Why We Stay Silent and How to Speak Up. Thank you so much for being here um, to share with us a little bit about your upcoming book, uh, Raise Your Voice. And for those of you who don't know Kathy, Kathy Kong is a speaker, journalist, and activist. She has worked in campus ministry for more than 20 years with expertise in issues of gender, ethnicity, justice, and leadership development. She is a columnist for Sojourners Magazine, a writer for Faith and Leadership, and a co-author of More Than Serving Tea, Asian American Women on Expectations, Relationships, Leadership, and Faith. So we're excited to have you here to share with us all of your wisdom and insight. Um, So with most of our audience being women in academia, tell us a little bit about your education and how it led you to what you're doing now. So I did my undergraduate at Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois, and my bachelor's degree is in journalism. So I intended to change the world one byline at a time and had goals of being a section editor by the time I was 30 at a major metropolitan newspaper, but that actually never came to be. Uh, I worked in journalism for five years in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And then after five years, I came on staff with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And that was 20, almost 21 years ago. (laughs) Excellent. So then what led you, so you started out in journalism and then eventually came on staff with InterVarsity and and did vocational ministry for 20 plus years, also raising children in in the background (laughs) or forefront. Um, But then what led you to writing Raise Your Voice? So I, um, like many uh, folks who are in vocational ministry, had to and wanted to keep donors and ministry partners um, aware of what was going on. So I was writing prayer letters Mm -hmm. for years and years and years. And that's actually what kept my writing um, and my writing skills and the hunger for writing up to date and live for me, even when I was in the midst of raising young children who demanded every moment of my attention. Right. And um, I got to be a part of More Than Serving Tea, which was a book through InterVarsity Press. That is now almost 12 years old. And that was uh, another kind of dipping my toes in the water of writing again. Mm. Um, That was also a time where things like mommy blogs were starting to really (laughs) erupt and blogging was a big deal. And I tried my hand at blogging. And I think that that's really what, again, kind of kept the writing on the forefront. And this particular book has probably been cooking in my head and in my mind for almost maybe 10 years or so, um, just because it was the thing that I would get asked about most often. Um, where did I find the courage to speak about, speak up about certain issues, whether it was in the context of my ministry or my community or even at church? And uh, yeah, but it took about 10 years, obviously, to 
kind of get enough courage and enough confidence to believe that I had something worth saying and that what I would say had any value for other people. Okay. So I I heard you say about needing to have courage uh, throughout this. Um, And in your book, you use the metaphor of giving birth to your voice um, in this. And in some ways you say it was actually giving birth to your children was more challenging than giving birth to your voice. Um, And clearly uh, courage, you would need courage to give your give birth to your voice and actually give birth to your children. Um, But can you share a little bit about some of those uh, most difficult challenges that you faced uh, in particular as a woman of color in giving birth to your voice and and raising your voice, uh, even in the same way you raised your children, what were some of the challenges? Well, I would say, you know, what made childbirth in some ways easier. And I don't say that lightly. I had um, major complications with uh, my firstborn and then miscarried, um, and then had some complications with my second. And um, all throughout that experience, there were classes to take, prenatal classes, birthing classes, lots of conversations with nurses and doctors. Um, I, you know, had the benefit of great um, health insurance and a hospital that was nearby, you know, all of the things that make childbirth kind of normal here in the U.S. and um, and the expert, expertise of doctors and surgeons and all that kind of stuff. And then even after giving childbirth, there was coaching and I could call a lactation consultant and talk to my pediatrician and all of these types of things or go on a mommy blog and get some advice. But, um, but in terms of kind of finding my voice and then learning to raise my voice and deal with the challenges and sometimes the pushback and the criticism Mm -hmm. of that, there's just not a whole lot of coaching Mm -hmm. (laughs) available and um, not a lot of safe spaces now, especially with social media, where you can do that and feel like there are no consequences to saying a particular thing out there. Um, And I would say that's what made it difficult. I've had great mentors along the way and spiritual directors and all sorts of people who have walked alongside, but in terms of kind of very specifically focusing on what it means to raise your voice, to speak up about specific issues. Um, th- yeah, there wasn't a lot of focus on that unless I asked for it specifically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and, you know, and you asked about kind of the, the challenge of that or the process of that as a woman of color. Um, I grew up with a lot of different mixed messages you know, at school, you're supposed to raise your voice, raise your hand when you know the right answer and participate for participation points, um, be active, be involved because that helps you get to college, blah, blah, blah. Um, but in the professional space, even in vocational ministry, it really depended on the context, whether or not it was appropriate or if what you had to say would be taken as critique Okay. Um, and, and how that was received, depending on the audience. And then even culturally, growing up, um, I'm Korean-American and kind of cultural rules around women speaking up and in what 
what context also looked different. So um, I can say that I wasn't really encouraged to be someone who raises their voice unless it was at school. Mm-hmm. Okay. But in every other context, it was the message was to stay silent and allow the status quo to rule. Yeah, that's interesting. Even thinking of the different contexts um, where, you know, one way you're supposed to speak up at school and then in other contexts, depending on the audience, even within, would you say in the ministry, uh, in vocational ministry, different groups of people would be more, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It would be more acceptable for you to speak up in some contexts in the ministry context or, or did yes. you Yes, but also very complicated because we're also working up against stereotypes and archetypes. And depending on a person's experience cross-culturally and across gender, it really depended. And I would say um, in my years of vocational ministry, there was a lot of conversation around how, you know, generally Asian Americans tend to be um, less outspoken, value harmony. And um, and so when I did raise my voice, I had to realize and learn that the impact of what I had to say might be at a 10 when I meant it for a five, mm-hmm. simply because people were not used to me speaking up at a meeting. Now, of course, that changes after 20 years and people have encountered me more often. But um, but also, I think across the board for women, we are often perceived as being overly aggressive or our outspokenness isn't necessarily labeled first as leadership, but more often than not, it is le- uh, labeled as being aggressive or angry. Mm-hmm. And and then you kind of put on that any kind of racial or ethnic cultural stereotypes and perceptions and biases on top of that. Mm-hmm. It makes it messy. <laughs> right. Yeah. And then one of sort of related one of the excerpts of the book that we posted um, a couple weeks ago at the well was from the chapter seen but not heard, where you shared about your experience of not being invited to be part of the Asian American ministerium um, in your town. And then when you hired an Asian American young man who had just recently graduated, so fresh out of undergrad, right? Um, Right. He was immediately invited. And you conclude the story with the sentence, 10 years of ministry wasn't enough credibility to overcome the fact that I am a woman. Um, Can you share a little bit more about how that experience um, shaped both your relationship with Jesus mm. and, uh, the, and the continuing to develop your voice. Yeah. I would like to say that my conversations with Jesus about having me be a Korean American woman have ceased, uh, but they continue because of incidents like that, mm-hmm. that I think one of the messages I got, um, both within my family of origin and even professionally, is that somehow um, experience then becomes your calling card. And that was definitely one of those moments where I realized, no, 
experience was never going to be my calling card, at least not in that small sliver of vocational ministry. And it, um, it causes me to go back to Jesus over and over again and to ask, is this what you mean by saying that you are the answer and that you are enough? Mm-hmm. Um, and trying to find some peace and some, I think, release in that. Uh, I think for us as women, we do wrestle with that, the aspect of gender in our professional, vocational, academic journeys and what, we're, what we face and how to see the positives and the pluses and advantages of that. Um, and I find that um, these challenges are going to continue and I would lose hope. I would be hopeless Um, if it were not for Jesus meeting me in that space and saying to me, I am enough. Your, your experience isn't going to be enough because then how can I get enough experience? Right. Right. If at that point, 10 years wasn't enough compared to somebody straight out of school, then I might as well have just given up, (laughs) crawl into a hole. Well, we're glad you didn't crawl into a hole um, and that you chose to continue on and even, you know, write about that experience that from the the way you write about it in the book, um, it was painful reading it um, as a woman in particular, but even I read it to my husband out loud and he also sort of felt a strong empathy, um, you know, even as a, as a man who, who says lots of things in his uh, workplace and as a, as a youth pastor, he says all sorts of things that I would never get away with saying. Right. Um, but yeah, so I, we, I, he learned from that, um, that section of your book and I deeply appreciated you sharing vulnerably, um, some of the painful parts of developing your voice, um, and even, you know, there's, I suppose there's a lot that no matter how much experience we have, you know, some people would never, will never choose to hear. Right. But we're grateful that you, you continue to speak and didn't crawl into a hole. Um, but one thing you shared earlier was about um, not, there aren't a lot of mentors, right? Uh, about developing your voice. And, and this is true. I was, as I was thinking about the metaphor of raising raising your voice and raising your children. There are mm-hmm. you know, ample books on raising children, especially raising boys, right? Awesome. Um, tons of books on that, but nothing really out there um, on raising your voice until now. Um, <laughs> but, but thinking of mentors, who were some of your mentors in your own journey of finding your voice? And then uh, with that, who would you point um, some of the women in our community, you know, women, grad students, medical students, mm-hmm. um, professors, uh, faculty, PhD students, who would you point us to, to, to sort of mentor us along in this sure. journey? Yeah, I am very grateful for a few mentors I've had um, in vocational ministry who were both men and women. Mm-hmm. And so for folks who are in the InterVarsity community um, might recognize the names of Jeanette Yep, mm-hmm. um, Paul Tokunaga, Henry Lucy Lee, and Greg Howe. Mm-hmm. And I would say those four people in um, uh, very specifically uh, <laughs> 
were on the receiving end of many conversations, a lot of venting and confusion and processing around incidents like the one that I wrote about. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I would say that for all four of them, um, one of the things that I valued and try, have tried to do when I'm supervising staff is to um, not say no for someone. Okay. Right. So to give um, people the opportunity to make decisions on, um, on future opportunities to weigh those out out loud and to be able to say yes or no to those opportunities. And I say that as learning to raise your voice in that I have found when I do have the opportunity to mentor women in particular, um, we are often um, trained and taught not to verbalize what we want. Mm-hmm. Right. And, um, and, and I know some men do it, but by and large, my experience over 20 years has, it's often the women. So simple things like, hey, where do you want to go to lunch becomes this painful experience of like turning it back at me. What would you like? There are these options and we could go there. We could go there. And I, I often will say and stop and ask back, what do you want to eat today? And that's something maybe indirectly and directly I learned from those four mentors as they offered up different opportunities to me without saying no on my behalf, without deciding that maybe this wasn't a good year for this opportunity because the kids were this age or things on campus were this chaotic. Um, And so I owe a lot to those four um, who are still a part of my development and journey and all of this. And then as far as, um, shoot, what was the second part of your question? Yeah, who would you point um, some of the people in our community or our audience who might be listening in today about uh, women, in particular, different women, um, mm-hmm. but, but, you know, men as well. Um, yeah. Um, we'll, you know, we'll stick with women. Um, <laughs> um, I have gotten to know and really um, appreciate someone who's in academia right now, um, Dr. Oyan Poon, P-O-O-N, and she is at uh, Colorado State um, in Fort Collins. And I met her through some mutual friends and um, she's somebody who's helped me learn about uh, the institution of higher ed okay. and what it means for women and particularly women of color to go through uh, the higher ed um, journey and decide to go for a PhD and do all of that work. And she is one of those um, folks I've watched and um, met some of her, um, met some of the amazing women that she mentors. And really it's the encouragement that she gives to them, not only to stay the course, but letting them know how difficult it will be and how she um, makes sure she's raising her voice and speaking up on behalf of uh, making space for women of color scholars. 
anyone else like um, perhaps other people to sort of listen uh, to their stories or follow on social media or um, obviously we will recommend your book as one to mentor people in how to read their voice but also are there any other books maybe that you've read in in your journey yeah um I would say so her book isn't about kind of raising your voice but I think her writing the book is is very much that. So um, Sandra Van Opstel, okay. um, who's written a book, The Next Worship, I believe is what it's called. It's somewhere. Um, if you can look it up, it's somewhere yeah. there. <laughs> and um, uh, and uh, so one of the things that I loved about getting to know Sandra over the years was for a long time, the only worship leaders I ever met were men. Hmm. And they were white men leading on guitars. (laughs) And there's a lot of that still, even in the local church experience. And there was Sandra leading worship with no instrument, Hmm. right? She's just leading with her voice and her body Mm -hmm. um, and her heart. And, um, and then to see and be a part of her journey, um, she uh, got her MDiv and even that, um, reading a bit about that and knowing her personally, uh, getting her MDiv in a place that also is not, I mean, they accept female MDiv candidates, mm-hmm. but again, I think it's stepping into a space that wasn't created for women and it wasn't created for women of color. So I really appreciate that end product of hers, that book, because it's not just about worship, but it's very much a part of her kind of owning her voice as a worship leader and as an expert mm-hmm. in that area. And you talked about her leading without an instrument, which is atypical in the evangelical world, I would say, right? But especially for a woman mm-hmm. um, to lead in that way. And also in your book, one of the things I really really appreciated and found interesting was the idea of having different ways to speak up apart from our actual voice. So you talk about uh, using our bodies. Um, you share a lot about your your daughter and her dancing and she majored in dance at Mm -hmm. the university and so it was fun for me because as I was reading your book I was actually physically at my six-year-old daughter's dance lessons Um, (laughs) so it was just a great space to read the book from and here uh, the way it's set up is we wait outside a waiting room but we don't watch them because parents are actually very distracting evidently Um, but we could hear her you know and her all the other little girls and one boy, uh, tap dancing their hearts out. And so <laughs> the idea of hearing them and, and they're definitely communicating something through their bodies. As I was reading your book, that was sort of a live example of it. Um, but I found it interesting just the way you shared about, I, there's several places in the book where you share about using our bodies or how we dress or even social media. And you talk about disembodied words, mm-hmm. um, words that are apart from our actual speaking voice. Um, so there, can you share a little bit more just about different ways to speak up, um, besides our actual physical voice? Yeah. Um, so yes, I, I write a lot about learning from my daughter and just that journey of using your body to express something without speaking. 
and um, for readers and listeners at the well who have young children, like infants and toddlers who cannot form complete sentences, <laughs> you might be able to relate the exhaustion as a parent trying to interpret the needs of said children who are not able to say, I'm just really tired. <laughs> but I think that's part of it is um, how, how can we be more in tune with kind of the physical expressions of what it means to be hangry and <laughs> what it means to have empathy. Um, and so there's a lot, I think that I have missed out on because I think in the way I was trained in vocational ministry, so much of it is our spoken words or written words. There's so much out there in terms of artists and what they're doing. So photographers, performance art, um, painters, poets, and um, and they're able to do it in a way that isn't always what they're feeling, but what they're experiencing in the world around them or trying to communicate something. So that's one area where it's not necessarily tied to our physical voices. Um, I like to wear message t-shirts mm -hmm. and and it's funny, too, because I swear that was like a thing in the late 70s, maybe in the 80s. You know, you could go into a T-shirt shop and they'd have like 100 different T-shirts and you could get them like ironed on or silk screened onto a T-shirt. And, um, and in part, it's there are words or maybe an image that I can communicate without ever having to say anything to anyone. Um, I like to wear them when I'm traveling and I'm in an airport mm. where people don't like to make eye contact, but you have to look up just enough not to like walk into each other. Um, and, uh, and I've had so many fun and interesting responses to the shirts that I wear. So that's another one of those things. And then, um, and I think uh, one of the ways in which we can communicate and speak up is our physical presence. Mm -hmm. And that's definitely something I've learned and had to learn to appreciate over the years that, um, that my parents do. Um, they're not really like touchy feely people. I mean, we hug and say goodbye and it takes forever cause there's so many people now. And, but, um, but you know, when we're sitting down, there's a lot that can't happen. Um, I'm not fluent in Korean and my parents' English is better than my Korean, but, you know, there's a lot lost in mm. translation. And, um, and I think that one of the things that they have always wanted is just um, our presence mm. to be able to sit with them. And in a world that goes at it 24 seven. Um, and I imagine a lot of folks, um, who are part of the well feel that pull and push to always be doing something mm -hmm. that sometimes the way we can communicate something is to just simply be present mm. and to sit with someone. Yeah. Yeah. You shared about present physical presence in the book as well. Um, not just in the sense of as ministry, but um, as making a statement mm -hmm. sort of, in, especially as a, as a woman of color, being mm -hmm. present in certain locations speaks without you having to speak 
Right. Um, and so with that, then also you talked about disembodied words, um, which could, in particular about social media, things you might write online, but then not have, an, you won't have a face-to-face response. You don't right. see right. body language and how someone might receive it, or it might just sort of go out there. And can you share a little bit more about that? And then also in that, in the context of, um, I know for me as a grad student in counseling, um, we're, we're taught, we were sort of advised, I should say, uh, to maintain a really like tight private world. Um, because of course our clients, our future clients will Google us. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know for medical students, that's also uh, a thing. Um, and, and probably true for, for many people that are, our faculty, um, their, their students are are going to Google them. Um, And so what do you have, uh, what, what sort of thoughts might you have for us on, um, using our voices in the online world mm-hmm. and yet also heeding the recommendation of maintaining right. privacy. Right. Right. And maintaining privacy and any rules that your employer may have around use of social media. And that's, that's a reality that I also mention is that you, you kind of need to know what rules that you need to abide by to stay employed, gainfully employed, if that's a goal of yours. And, um, and I think with the disembodied words, yeah, social media is such a strange place because you can be shouting at the world and not necessarily have anybody listen to you, Mm -hmm. or you could have, you know, 3000 people listening to you. Uh, and if that is the only place they encounter you, it may also feel very different than who you are face to face. And so I think it's an understanding of whatever medium you're using. I think many of us cut our teeth on emails mm-hmm. and trying to communicate tone, even in an email, is so difficult because there's no intonation. So then we try to add smiley faces and right. you know, and things like that that again in a professional context may not be appropriate. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's learning uh, how to use each medium according to its purpose within the framework of where you sit, your job, and to also know that you do not have to use social media to speak up and to raise your voice. It's not the only space to do it. I have plenty of readers who are like, oh, maybe I should start a blog. (laughs) I often say, well, maybe you shouldn't. (laughs) Um, Because there is a give and take to how saturated that space is. And are the people you want hearing your message out there going to read your blog? Or are they people you actually have personal relationship with, and it's better to have coffee with. So, you know, I I do think that you have to be wise and you have to discern um, that keeping a very tight, you know, rein on your ship in terms of uh, social media and what you post and what is accessible um, is the case for most people um, in the professional and academic space. Mm-hmm. Um, and knowing that if there are issues that you care about, 
um, how can you support those issues? How can you get the word out about those issues? How can you challenge other people about participation or at least getting involved in those issues? Um, doesn't require and can't require social media. But, you know, we didn't have Twitter. Right. You know, back then there was no Instagram or Pinterest. And so how would you have done it? You know, you may have made a phone call um, or make a personal invitation um, or, or propose it as an option. Um, I think there are many creative ways that existed before social media. Right. That's helpful. I think, I mean, not that we need Kathy Kong's permission per se. <laughs> you don't have to have Twitter, um, but it is helpful to hear that wisdom that, because I think our culture in some ways is pulling us, like you need to make a statement about everything on social media or you, or you're not, you know, you're not doing your duty. Right. Um, so in some ways that's helpful to to consider like there, yeah, a reminder. There are so many other ways we could actually right. talk to people or right. call them on the phone. But yeah, I'm thinking of, you know, professors and with classes of undergraduate students and the students are looking to them for their thoughts on, on current issues. Mm-hmm. And it can be done in the context of the classroom or mm-hmm. in one-on-one conversations rather than broad sweeping social media post. Right. So that's helpful. Um, thank you for your thoughts on that. And um, I think we're winding down on time. Mm-hmm. So if you have any final words of wisdom, um, even about, uh, in, in particular, maybe spiritual disciplines mm-hmm. uh, in the context of, of raising your voice and, and learning and developing um, the, the voice, the thing. <laughs> yeah. I'm out of words. <laughs> I know. Isn't that funny? It's so hard. I, um, spiritual disciplines. Um, I think in this day and age of uh, being connected virtually, having community is important. Mm. And, and I say this as someone who has been um, uh, kind of a church uh, we've been, we've been without a home church for almost a year and, um, trying to find and finding community. Um, we want to find a church. So that's still on the list. Fear not. But, um, but in the meantime, um, when you start to raise your voice about different issues, it can be a very lonely thing. It can be a scary thing. Um, and it's so much easier and so much better when you have a community to have feedback from and get encouragement from. So I would say community. Um, I pray constantly and not, you know, like in, in the prayer corner. It's just this constant bantering with God in my head. Mm-hmm. Um, is this a good idea? <laughs> is this in my wheelhouse? is this, you know, is this the thing that you're inviting me to write about or speak about? And, um, and to then go back um, to God and process that uh, situation. And um, so praying community 
And then this is a hard one I know for friends um, in school, in academia. Um, I don't have to write for my job as some professors do, but I still journal. I still um, put down notes handwritten into a notebook um, to kind of, again, embody that, to have that physical practice of slowing down instead of typing furiously. And, um, and there, the journal, uh, the journal, whatever you call them, uh, entries are not like long. They're often really quick and short, like, oh my God, I think I screwed this up and I may go back, um, to do that. So that discipline, um, and, uh, though not a spiritual discipline, but a lifelong discipline that pulls on every spiritual discipline you've ever practiced is, I would say, a word of wisdom. You will fail miserably mm. <laughs> in this. And, um, and failure is rough, and it goes against my recovering perfectionist tendencies. Um, but know that you're going to fail, and you're in good company, that throughout Scripture— there's nothing but failure. <laughs> There's just mistakes over and over and over by some of the matriarchs and patriarchs of our faith. Mm. And um, to find not only comfort in that, but also encouragement that we don't get this right the first time. That's well, an encouraging note to end on, <laughs> that, that you will fail. <laughs> You're in good company. So... <laughs> And, I th and you share some in the book, too, about some experiences of, of fear and failure. Um, so that's another plug for people that are listening to actually go get your book. And I think we even have like a coupon code at, that'll be on the website um, from IVP for 40% off. So um, awesome. anyway, that was unintentional there at the end to plug that. But uh, yeah, thank you so much for, for your time and for sharing your wisdom with us and um being a mentor to us, even in this like 30 minutes for how we can develop our own voices. Um, so thanks so much, Kathy. Thank you. You've been listening to Wappy Hour. WAP, Women in the Academy and Professions, is a focused ministry initiative of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA. Thanks for joining our conversation. We would love to hear your feedback. To offer it or to learn more about who we are or the resources and connections that we provide, including hosting a WAPI Hour conversation like this on your campus, we invite you to visit us at our online gathering place, The Well. You can find us at The Well dot intervarsity dot org.